to Season 3 of Histo Help, the podcast series with tips, tricks, and solutions to the common and not-so-common problems in the lab. In this season, we're going to expand on your tech knowledge, talk about a polar bear, and figure out some interesting training ideas for heart tissue. Thanks for listening, and enjoy! one of this two-part AI in the lab histo help. This episode is going to feature once again our NSH podcast expert and AI advocate David Kroll as well as Adam Smith from Indicolabs. Dave and Adam are going to talk about validation when it comes to AI technology, data collection, as well as Adam sharing his three approaches to ways that a person who's interested in implementing AI technology can easily do so. Here's David Kroll. So I thought I'd start out by talking a little bit about my background. So I have a lot of experience in research. So I was at uh, Pfizer and then I moved to uh, GSK. So I have about uh, 30 years total in, in the research setting. And I know quite a few of our listeners will have some research background, but the majority will likely be from uh, clinical diagnostic labs. So we're hoping hopefully going to cover information that would be uh, applicable to people in research as well as uh, the clinical histotechnology and, and diagnostics. So I'm gonna start um, just asking a few questions, Adam. Maybe you could uh, first tell us a little bit about how you got involved in, in digital pathology and, and histology uh, by sharing a little bit about your background and uh, what brought you to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely, thanks Dave. Um, so yeah, I started out uh, my career in the labs um, at Merck in the safety assessment group there. And that was probably about a, a year or two in. So I was doing everything from necropsy um, up through through staining and sort of everything in between there in the process. And uh, you know, had a lab meeting where they introduced this digital whole slide scanner um, and they, they kind of touted it as where uh, the field was going. And it was a great opportunity, especially in safety assessment and in toxicology to uh, hopefully increase the, the throughput. And um, you know, really one of the, the main drivers when they brought that on board was the hope that uh, artificial intelligence would be able to help uh, the, the tox, uh, tox paths really sort of whittle down their workflow. Um, you think about sort of the, the large scale um, of, of the slides that come through their labs, um, especially yeah. for like a CARSO study. Um, yeah. You know, and then, then you know, 90 plus percent of those slides are, are not remarkable, just totally normal everyday slide and they're searching for those needles in the haystack. And so um, the initial goal when, when they brought everything on was to use artificial intelligence to screen these slides, look for abnormal versus normal, sort of flag the abnormal slides. And that's where um, they could spend their time is sort of focused on what exactly is this? Is it drug related? What, what's going on there? Um, and that was the, the goal and the intent. And that's back um, probably like 06 or so, 07. Wow, okay. Um, and uh, and so so I, I kind of got involved on, on that end, um, you know, with the scanners and working in the labs, prepping slides and, and things like that. And then eventually moved into image analysis, um, really took to it and uh, enjoyed it as, as sort of the, the favorite part of the, the workflow there for me. And then uh, kind of parlayed that into uh, a job at Indica Labs where I was, I was actually a customer of Indica's okay. um, working at Merck. Um, really liked the software, liked the company, and then sort of transitioned over where I now got to do image analysis uh, as a full-time uh, job. So I, I really like being able to come back, especially you know with a, with an audience like NSH, where it's it's almost all primarily you know end users in the lab, really similar background and sort of 
career path um, that I was on uh, and being able to sort of be in a familiar uh, audience and talking to everyone. So a lot of the things that um, I wish I knew at the time, I like to try to yeah. bring that along as well uh, and, and pass that along uh, when I can. So yeah, um, experience is our best teacher, right? We, we learn sure. by for doing sure. and uh, making mistakes and trying over again. And so I, I'm sure you bring a lot of that to your current role. Absolutely. I try to pass that along, uh, help people sort of avoid um, some of those pitfalls along the way. So um, I, I just want to go back to something that you had mentioned. So 2006, that that's almost unbelievable because that's that's way before I was even thinking about our artificial intelligence. And here you were actually using that at Merck uh, to really try to identify um, abnormal. Is that what you're saying from H&E sections, maybe? Yeah, so there was uh, a company, it was SPC, I think it was Systems Pathology Company Corporation. It's, it's, it's a little foggy at this point, 15 years okay, later. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was, uh, it was uh, Gary Knutson, who's a, a vet path, uh, was, oh, was okay. running the company. And uh, they had a software called CAPS, and that was the, the intent was to be able to screen it. And so um, they had several groups, you know, that were sort of working through the proof of concept studies and uh, working through the software. And, and then... Uh, eventually I think it was purchased by, by Charles River and then kind of well, it was shelved at the time. And I think the reasons it kind of got shelved was that, um, you know, from a technology perspective, the computing power um, mm. needed to, to undertake something like that. You think again about the, the scale of, of tax studies and just hundreds and hundreds of slides coming That's through right. yeah. that is screening. Um, the analysis times and working through that hardware wise in 2006, you know, networking wise, uh, within a company to have the pipeline to move all that through. I don't think it was quite quite there yet. So um, I think it was a, a little bit ahead of its time. Okay. And so now, you know, 15 years later, um, we're still seeing, um, you know, the, the processing power of the computers and the hardware is really the limitation for uh, a lot of labs to, to implement that. And so looking at, at GPU processing and um, it's it's becoming more and more accessible, but that's still one of the, the major hurdles. So going back again, 15 years ago, uh, it was it was a wall and not a hurdle at that point um, mm -hmm. for really slowing people down. So it was, it was interesting. Um, a few months back, I was I was sort of looking through some old uh, agendas for the uh, the DPA conference uh, pathology visions. Yeah, and that that's where I found that the 07 agenda had uh, a talk from from Gary on there, and the agenda as a whole had a lot of AI on there, and it was pretty pretty incredible to me to see. Um, you know, these, these talks at the time, if you look at that agenda, just at face value, it looks like, man, problem solved. Like, it looks like we haven't done anything in the past 15 <laughs> years um, because, you know, everything was there and, and, and the ideas, I think, you know, the, uh, the hardware and the technology has started to catch up now where I think it, it's become much more accessible to, to labs. You know, you could run it on an individual tower. You don't need sort of this, this massive processing and, and some of the, the capabilities that you, you probably would have needed at the time to successfully implement. Um, that's yeah, and and you were mentioning that that example about screening, you know, uh, diseased versus normal or uh, off-target issues involved with safety studies, and now uh, I guess we we've seen a real mixture of different applications for artificial intelligence. So now that we have more advanced immunohistochemistry techniques where we can label proteins and, and things like uh, RNA scope, where we're actually detecting uh, mRNA transcripts and tissue samples. How are you seeing um, the AI being ad adapted to meet those needs? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So there's sort of two, two segments of AI um, that we see 
out there. Uh, the first is going to be more on the data side of things. So taking that multiplex data that you're getting out of, out of there, um, correlating that with patient or specimen data and trying to dig through and, and figure out where the trends are. So if you have, uh, I don't know, 10 markers um, on a slide and you're trying to piece out, you know, which two or three of those at a certain intensity, where, where's the connection between um, effect or no effect or um, responding, not responding, all those sorts of endpoints. And that's really not the realm where we deal, um, but okay. it is it is AI nonetheless. You know, you're, you're teaching yeah. the computer and then the computer's going through and trying to find those connections. The other piece of it is more on the, really on the tissue segmentation side of things. So segmenting tumor from non-tumor, um, segmenting cells has become um, more common recently. Um, segmenting nuclei, um, then most recently we've sort of merged our, our traditional halo analyses, you know, cell counting, cell uh, phenotyping through intensity of those markers and combine that with uh, the AI nuclear segmentation. So you're, you're, you're able to take sort of more challenging tissue types. So things like, um, like GI sections where, where the epithelium mm -hmm. really have just some packed in uh, cell populations and get some better segmentation um, based on that, that AI nuclear segmentation. So um, really the, the tissue segmentation piece has been the, the big one for us. So um, whether it is, um, you know, directly looking at the, the stain sections and sort of getting some, some segmentation there or taking the information from the stains, the, the multiplex sections and applying that to H&Es. Um, and so being able to kind of define uh, the tumor population in an H&E uh, based on training data that comes from an H&E and an IHC stained image. So sort of in the same training set. So that's something that um, using sort of more simplistic machine learning or AI methods, like a, like a random forest algorithm, um, you couldn't do that. You couldn't take H&E images and train a network along with IHC images that would sort of just everything would break down because it was, it was based solely on color and texture. Um, but with the AI networks, it's using a lot more contextual information and, and size and, and things like that to, to develop sort of a more robust uh, segmentation across multiple staining modalities. Okay. And this can, by somebody that hasn't really done any work in AI or artificial, um, artificial intelligence or uh, image analysis, uh, how how approachable is this technology? How, how much training do people really need to to do this? Because it, it sounds like it could be pretty complex for some labs to do it. Yeah, you know, it it does it does sound like that at face value. Um, and, and there's there's really three different approaches that we've seen so far to kind of bring that to folks in the lab. Um, one of them is sort of the more uh, CRO approach, where there are okay. companies and and vendors and, and ourselves included that. Um, you can bring them a data set and say, you know, this is what we want to accomplish, go mm -hmm. do it and get back to us with a, a trained um, segmentation. So that's sort of one option and sort of one model that's available. Um, the other is going to be sort of, um, uh, I'd say more of like a web-based model where those networks and, and things are sort of pre-built, ready to go, and then you're submitting your test set. Um, and it's more of like a per-click type of model. So again, the, the work is sort of already done ahead of time um, in that training piece. And then the, the third and sort of the option that we provide is going to be um, allowing users to basically use pretty simple drawing tools 
circle areas, outline areas for the training data and supply that to um, the networks for training. And so while the, the math on the back end uh, is, is way over my head and, and totally out of my realm of expertise uh, yeah. on the on the user side of things, uh, it's actually pretty straightforward where um, okay. even the pathologist can, can select those regions, um, specify what that is. The, the technician can then select them depending on the complexity and, and what you're trying to segment. Um, I'm, I'm far from a pathologist. And hmm. uh, at this point, I can find glomeruli on a kidney image and circle them and provide them to a network to train right nice. so that depending on the, the application um you know it, it can it can be a wide range of of expertise sort of on on what you're circling but the, the basic process of, of drawing you know outlining an area and supplying that to the network is, is pretty accessible and pretty straightforward um on that front yeah well you, you made me think back to a very early uh image analysis, I'll put in quotes, because it was very manual. It wasn't software at all. Uh, I was actually doing uh, my an evaluation of some rat liver that was actually treated with, with a compound. And my very first immunostain was uh, PCNA. It was the PC10 clone, and it was just the regular DAV IHC method that was uh, run manually. Uh, and I had to use a microscope and with a reticule and go around and count a number of high power fields uh, and then count all the PCNA positive cells uh, within those fields. And they had a, a little clicker that I used to uh, count those. And so that, that was my first uh, uh, study doing quantitative uh, IHC expression based on, on cell counts. And, I, and I'm thinking back at the time, I didn't even count the, the non-positive ones either. I was just counting the absolute value per field, which didn't take into account the number of uh, negative nuclei. And now I, I think how uh, image analysis now, you can count all of the nuclei and then actually segment on the size and the shape of the nuclei. So we have so much more power there. So maybe you could comment on that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's really one of the, the benefits of, of image analysis, whether it's AI-based uh, or not, is is the ability to, to really raise that N and yeah. um, get that, that bigger sample size where um, maybe it, it de-emphasizes the, the overall accuracy a bit, um, but what it replaces with is the consistency of um, that count's going to be the same Friday morning uh, as it is Tuesday afternoon. Right. And, you know, if that cell is positive, it's always positive. So I'm sure in that that mode where you're going through with the clicker and, and trying to keep track, there's some cells that are like that borderline uh, of is that positive? Is it not positive? And that answer could change uh, whether if Dave's counting, if Adam's counting, uh, whoever's counting, that that could change. And then the time of day, things like that, you know, that, that can really move. And, and with image analysis, it doesn't. So you're you're upping that end. And so statistically, um, you know, that maybe, you know, some of the where areas where it's not as accurate, um, statistically, it, it's not making a difference because you're now counting a million cells in a section, which um, I don't know what your, your average sample size was with the clicker, um, but I'm, I'm assuming it was maybe per 100 cells or something yeah, like that, yeah. you know, where it's not in the tens of thousands or, or millions That's of right. sections. Yeah. And so uh, you start thinking about the scale of that to take a whole slide section, count all of the cells, mm. positive cells, and now you do that on a hundred more images, uh, you end up with a really strong data set. Um, 
that you know it's it's easy i think when you're you're sort of setting up some of these these assays and algorithms um to get kind of micro focused on a small area and yeah oh, you know what it's missing that cell and it, it, yeah that's that, right. we need to get that right and and you, you you know you spend some time getting that right and then you jump to another field of view and now it's missing something else and you got to try to tweak that but the reality of it is that when you count those million cells uh that difference between whether that one was counted or not uh it's, it really doesn't make a difference statistically uh, yeah it's more about and getting I that getting that fat part of the bell curve right and um you know and then having a really strong data set based on the sheer volume of, of data that you're you're going through I, I i'm not sure where i got the the phrase from but i've heard um somebody say uh what is it count more or less well so you, you increase the number of cells that you're counting but you don't have to worry about as being being as accurate because you're 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 raising your n yeah, we I had I had the, the good fortune to work with a biostatistician on some studies uh, mm. when I was at Merck, and uh, it was it was pretty eye opening to see uh, the way that he then approached uh, the data and what was important, and you know really leveraging that expertise to to narrow down the sample size and okay, well how many okay. sections do you take from this specimen? Uh, so if you take three slices from this block, you know what does that do to your n and 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 to the the overall data versus two slices and uh, if you have three pieces of tissue on the same slide you know from different parts of that organ um, you know that the difference between those sections versus the difference between the slides and um, really just going kind of going through all those different tests to to ultimately come up with a strategy for that specific assay um, to give you the best data uh, and so mm -hmm. that idea of, of sampling more or less well is is definitely um, an accurate summary of it. Yeah, you brought in something else, you know, that that I think is important for the listeners to know, and that's you have to reach out and design to others to help design the appropriate study to get the end. So again, begin with the end in mind. So what questions do you want to answer, and how do you plan to do that, and then get the right people around the table to design the study that can answer those questions and sometimes it does mean uh, bringing in a, a statistician to do that as well uh, to help do those power calculations so you can have a, a good idea on, on what to measure and, and how to measure those things and we also want to be responsible and efficient in the work that we do too especially with um, human samples and, and animals we want to be very um, uh cognizant of the resource that we have and and not uh use more than what is necessary to answer the question uh so those are all things that are very important the other thing that that comes up quite a bit is around the validation like how do you validate these methods and and what is actually the ground truth we know that uh humans make mistakes and uh they they can be fallible but it seems it seems like uh, people are more open in general to accept somebody's uh, visual observations and counts over account from uh, the software, and and actually the software should be doing a better job, right? If it's if it's well uh, set up and configured, versus a person who like you said earlier, could be tired that particular day or maybe not be having a good day and could be rushing to get through something or could be a Friday afternoon and they're just trying to catch up on, on some 
some studies that they need to do before uh, taking off for the weekend. So there can be more variabilities versus a software package that has been uh, finely tuned to do that type of image analysis. And then you just let it run overnight or uh, across uh, the day while you apply your skills to something else and you allow the software to do uh, what it needs to do. So maybe you could comment a little bit about uh, your approach to validation or what you see other groups doing with respect to that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a pretty common question that comes up um, to us, you know, especially with, with AI as we're looking at the, the volume of, of training data. Um, it's a pretty common question, like well, how, how big does the training set need to be or how many yeah. images do I need? And um, the, the answer, the non-answer, unfortunately, is that it, it depends. It depends, um, yeah. You know, it depends on your, your study, yep. your assay, the sensitivity of it, uh, and so on. And so what, what we try to do is provide um, some, some additional evidence to help you in the validation. Um, okay. And again, everyone's tolerance is going to be different, too, of what, what's the right percentage of accuracy. Is it 90? Is it 80? Um, you know, what percentage is that for, for everyone? So it can vary. But so what we do is we, we try to provide some endpoints. So in, in AI, uh, we use cross entropy as a value that, that's computed, um, that, that's giving you, a, I guess, a clue that your, your network is, is heading in the right direction. But uh, so cross entropy is a measure of what the computer is learning versus what you've given it as training data. Uh, okay. So sort of comparing it to the ground truth that you've given it. Now, where that could be misleading is if you have given it poor training data, right? Okay. So, so if I tell the computer uh, that these are all pictures of cats, um, but in reality, they're actually pictures of dogs, right? The computer <laughs> can get really good at identifying what it thinks is a cat and it's telling yeah. you, I've got this down, this is perfect. Uh, but in reality, it, it, it doesn't know anything because you're giving it bad data. So that cross-entry data can be, can be low. And so... In addition to that, then we have some visualizations that we use um, to allow you to see in real time what the data would look like. So uh, you get some real time uh, feedback uh, for a field of view of, of sort of what that segmentation would look like, uh, what the, the cell segmentation, things like that. And that allows you to then take that, that cross entry value. So you have a low value. You're then by eye validating that and saying, yeah, that, you know, that looks right. The cross entry value is low so that's starting to give you more and more confidence that you're you're about to hit that point of, of validation and then i think you know looking at at multiple fields multiple specimens um sort of the high ends and low ends of intensity because we know that can that can vary as well and sort of looking at at you know trying to get a, a nice cross section of your data set as, as part of the validation so unfortunately there's no sort of hard fast number but um, sort of using all of those clues and then applying it to that that cross section um, should really start to point you in that direction of, of getting to a point where uh, you feel confident in you know in the accuracy uh, of that network and of your your training data and, and you're able to apply that to um, a larger set. Yeah, that, that's a really good uh, example, and I, I like your analogy about you know cats versus dogs. We, we need to be uh, really confident that we're teaching the software to identify the correct objects, right? Um, if, the, if, the, if we're telling it to identify the wrong thing, then it's only going to be as good as the person that, that was training the software, right? The, the AI approach. And that goes back to even a little bit uh, 
more downstream of that is really making sure that we have the appropriate assay. So a lot of uh, labs are using these new antibodies that are coming on the market and they need to do their own uh, assay validation to make sure that their antibodies are, are validated and they are confident that it's, it's uh, labeling the appropriate target. Um, and as we're getting more involved into multiplexing, that's even more important uh, to look at those, those different combinations. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that about covers it. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you have a tip, trick, or piece of knowledge you'd like to share, let us know. We would love to feature you on a future episode of HistoHelp. Have a great day.